0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport. A retrospective series on the most compelling, the most controversial, and the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Last time out, we revisited Bernard Eno's battle through blizzards to win the 1980 edition of Liège Baston Liège. The ride was, in Eno's words, hellish. This time, Recycle is on another road to hell. It's a road that has staged some standout moments in the history of the Giro d'Italia, from Fiorenzo Magni's grimacing heroics in 1956 to Simon Gerrand's dropping Chris Froome in 2009. So, just why has this one devilish climb provided the backdrop for so many landmark moments in the history of the Giro? They say 666 is the number of the beast. Not that many riders to have taken on the monstrous climb to the Basilica San Luca in northern Italy need reminding. Towering above the city of Bologna, the eye-catching Basilica is reached by a steep one8 kilometer climb lined by a sandstone portico made up of 666 arches. And, with the gradient ramping up to a maximum of 16%, each one of those arches will feel fairly diabolical, no matter who you are in the peloton. The climb featured in the 2019 edition of the Giro, coming at the end of a short time trial, won by Primoz Roglic, which made up the first eight kilometres of the race. The Slovenian powered home 47 seconds ahead of eventual GC winner Richard Carapaz. It might not share the same celebrity status of the Koppenberg, the Murdehoy or La Redue, but the punchy ascent has proved a key springboard in three previous editions of the Giro. It also entertains the masses each autumn in a hipster one-day classic, and it's where one of the most iconic photographs in the history of the entire Corsa Rossa was taken. The longest portico in the world is an arched walkway that zigzags 274 metres above sea level, where the red 18th century church stands on the site of the 15th century church that came before it. Inside are displayed the Byzantine representation of the Madonna and Child, which, every year since 1433, is carried in procession during Ascension Week. The holy icon is carried down the hill to the city centre, where it is held for one week in the Cathedral of San Pietro before another procession spirits it back up the hill. Starting at Melencello, 55 metres above sea level, the climb's 1.8 kilometres have an average gradient of 10.8%. The 3.8-kilometre-roofed colonnade starts well before the climb kicks up as the road passes under the Pontecchio Marconi, one of the 666 arches which rise to the summit from the centre of Bologna. The journalist Daniel Freib, in his book Mountain Higher, says that it took 47 years for the brick portico to be completed. For many in the saddle, it will feel like 47 years just to reach the top. Almost instantly, the gradient hits double figures, looking down on the terracotta-tiled roofs of Bologna as the portico hugs the left-hand side of the road. There's a small stadium feel to this climb, says the Inner Ring blog. The cyclist rides up the road while locals and tourists march up and down the portico, an ever-present audience that you don't usually get when climbing. After the first steep phase, the road flattens out under a footbridge on the arcade. There follows a challenging S-bend, the Curva della Orfanelli, or Orphan's Corner, before the toughest section of the climb, a long, straight ramp that kicks up to 16%, with the portico now running on the right. After another underpass, when the gradient eases to a luxuriant 6%, the final rise to the line takes place with the colonnade back on the left of the road ahead of the finish in the shadow of the Basilica. Unlike, say, the Church of Madonna del Gasalo above Lake Como, which features in Il Lombardia and boasts a small cycling museum, the Basilica di San Luca has no cycling history as such. As the Inner Ring reports, however, it does bear the motto, Salvation from the Mountain. 2019 marked the fourth time that the Giro d'Italia had followed the road to salvation. The inaugural run came in 1956 with a three-kilometre time trial won by the Luxembourg climber Charlie Gaul on a day that is perhaps remembered more for the bravery of the grizzled Italian veteran Fiorenzo Magni, the original exponent of the pain face perfected today by Fabio Aru, Having broken his collarbone days earlier, three-time Giro champion Manny tied an inner tube around his handlebars and bit down on it to help steer his bike and alleviate the pain. In 1984, the Giro came to San Luca for a second time with a road stage which was won by the Italian Moreno Argentine. Marking the 100th anniversary of the Giro, the race returned to the Basilica for a third time in 2009 when Australia's Simon Gerrans soloed to glory on the ramped finish, dropping in an unknown Anglo-Kenyan rider from the Barlow World Team, the artist formerly known as Chris Froome. If used only sparingly in the Giro, the climb is more regularly associated with the Giro dell'Emilia, the autumn one-day race that features a finishing circuit which often uses the gruelling climb four or five times in succession. Italy's Alessandro Di Marchi is the most recent winner of a race that has seen victories for the likes of Esteban Chavez in 2016, Nairo Quintana in 2012 and, in 2009 and again in 2010, Robert Hessink as well as controversial figures Danilo di Luca in 2008 and Davide Rebellin in 2006 and again in 2014. One of the most memorable wins, however, came in 2001 following a series of astonishing attacks from Germany's Jan Ulrich. It showcased the climb in all its brutality. He blew away Ivan Basso and Cadell Evans, among others, before out-sprinting Francesco Casagrande and Rebellin to the line. The greatest show of brute strength, however, came in 1956 at the Giro d'Italia from Fiorenzo Magni. Never mind the technical pros and cons, Magny's exploits are possibly the best argument against tubeless tyres we've ever seen. Because without a supply of spare inner tubes, we would have been deprived of the most celebrated photograph from the golden age of Italian cycling. A wartime fascist who was once accused of being pushed up the Passo Pordoi, Magny was a controversial figure who never emerged from the shadows of the much-loved Fausto Coppi and Gino Bartoli. He was the third man on the road and by some distance in public affection, says Italy-based cycling writer Herbie Sykes. He won the Giro three times but became a national hero in 1956 when he finished second. That second-place finish came in the 36-year-old's final Giro when he crashed badly on the descent from Volterra on stage 12 to Livorno. It later emerged that Magny had broken his left collarbone. At the hospital, they said I should put on a plaster cast and quit, said Magny. But I didn't want to, since the next day was a rest day I told the doctor to do nothing and that we should wait and see. The day after, I asked the doctor to put on an elastic bandage instead of a cast because I wanted to try to ride the following stage, Livorno to Luca. It worked. I wasn't among the first riders, but I finished. I used up four pairs of shoes by trying to break. Then I rode over the Apennines. But on the uphill time trial at San Luca, the pain was too much. It was Magny's mechanic, Falerio Massi, who came up with the idea. Instead of Magny throwing in the towel and putting his shoulder in a cast, as the doctor advised, Massey tied an inner tube to the rider's handlebars so Magny could pull back with his teeth as the gradient wrapped up to 16% on the climb. It was a means of helping him balance as well as helping him ease the pain. While Charlie Gaul won the 3 km race against the clock in a time of 6 minutes and 56 seconds, beating Spain's Federico Bahamontes by three seconds, Magny dug deep to finish out of the top ten more than 30 seconds off the pace but he lived to fight another day, although he was far from out of the woods. One day after the determined Italian bit down on his inner tube on his way up to Madonna di San Luca, finding himself unable to use his brakes properly and barely able to steer, he crashed on a descent in the Apennines and broke his humerus. ''I didn't have enough strength in my left arm and I crashed after hitting a ditch by the road,'' he said. ''I fell on my already broken bone and fainted from the pain. The ambulance came to bring me to the hospital.'' In the ambulance, they gave me water and I got back on my feet. When I realised that I was being taken to the hospital, I screamed and told the driver to stop. I didn't want to abandon the Giro. Astonishingly, Magni got back on his bike and completed the stage. Four days later, and entering the Dolomites with two broken bones, he rode over the Stelvio and finished second on stage 19. The next day, almost half the peloton abandoned, including race leader Pasquale Fonara. In apocalyptic snow on Monte Bondone, hardman Magni was not one of them. Charlie Gaul, the angel of the mountains, moved into the Mali Rossa despite trailing Fornara by 17 minutes before the stage, with Magni, his nearest rival. In his last Giro, Magni defied everything to finish runner-up just 3 minutes and 37 seconds down on Gaul. Only 43 riders from 105 starters made it to Milan. Once the race was over, Magni finally listened to his doctor's advice from two weeks prior. But the mythical photo of Magny biting down on his inner tube became the most celebrated photograph from the golden age of Italian cycling. It laid bare the one field in which the third man of Italian cycling managed to surpass both Coppi and Bartoli. Mani had what the Italians refer to as grinta, says Sykes. That's grit to you and me. Cataveria, roughly translating as badness, is something else he was said to have. He was hard as nails, Sykes continues. He made up in desire and guts what he lacked in outright class. John Foote, author of Pedalare Pedalare, a history of the Giro d'Italia, says that Manny kept a blow-up of the photograph by his desk in his car showroom in Monza, where he continued working well beyond his retirement from cycling. There were no rubber pain relief devices on display when the Giro returned to the steep ramp to St. Luca again in 2009, and Simon Gerrans famously dropped the future multiple Tour de France winner Chris Froome on his way to victory. I was racing for the Cervelo test team, and our leader for the race was Carlos Sastre, Gerrans recalls. Our goal was to win the race with him, so he told us to be as conservative as possible in the first couple of weeks. Then, in the final week, the plan was to start animating the race. With the Spaniard Sastra sitting in fifth place on GC, it was stage 14 when Gerens and teammate Philip Degnan got the nod to attack. Played out in sweltering temperatures above 30 degrees, the 172 km stage featured four climbs ahead of the punchy finish. The 13-man move had a big enough gap over the peloton as they started the climb. After some early pace-setting by Ukraine's Andrei Grivko, Ruben Bertoliati of Switzerland rode clear before Froome, three days after his 24th birthday, tried to bridge over. Chunkier than the elbows and knees cyclists we know today, the then Barlow World Rider was making his maiden appearance at the Giro. Geran's latched on to Froome's counterattack, and the pair reeled in Bertoliati on the first steep double-digit section of the climb. But it was on Orphan's Corner when Gerin started to show his class. The Australian hit the steepest part of the climb and dropped Froome with ease. As Geran's passed under the Flamme Rouge, his inexperienced rival could be seen zigzagging his way up the 16% incline as the chasers closed in. The crowds that day were enormous, with many spectators watching from the arches of the portico, making the finale a claustrophobic but stunning spectacle. Did Gerens have time to appreciate the scene in which he was playing the lead role? You'd say I wasn't really soaking up the vista of the climb, Gerens says. I was more concentrating with getting to the top as quick as I could, and working with my breakaway companions to ensure we weren't getting caught by the bunch. I do remember, obviously, that it's ultra steep. I remember going through quite a narrow archway near the bottom, but I don't remember much about the surroundings. When you're in a front row race like that, you don't even really notice the crowds too much. You just stay focused on the job in hand. Geran soloed to victory by 12 seconds over Bertogliatti, with Froome pedalling squares on his way to sixth, 36 seconds down, his best stage result of the Giro to that point. Having ridden the climb, could Gerens envisage riding it with a broken collarbone like Magny? Oh my goodness, he says, absolutely not. I've obviously seen that photo, but I wasn't aware that it was from that climb. I've completed stages with some broken bones in the past, but it's really tough when you've got to really use your upper body to pull up on the handlebars. On a steep climb like San Luca, if you have a broken collarbone, that would be very difficult. Having already won the Prato Novoso stage at the Tour de France in 2008, the Australian went on to complete a Grand Slam later that year with victory in Stage 10 at La Vuelta a España at Mercia. Guerin's win on Stage 14 of the 2009 Giro also opened the floodgates for his Cervelo test team. Carlos Sastra won twice in the final week, at Monte Petrano and Vesuvius, en route to finishing fourth in Rome. He was later elevated to runner-up behind Denis Menchov, following the retroactive bands of Italian duo Danilo Di Luca and Franco Pelizzotti. Lithuania's Ignatis Konovalovas added a fourth win for Cervelo in the final time trial in Rome. A year later, in 2010, both Gerens and Chris Froome, who finished his first Giro in 36th place overall, joined Team Sky. After two frustrating seasons, Gerrans left the British team to join the new Australian project at GreenEdge. Froome looked to be joining him on the way out until a sudden upturn of form at the 2011 Vuelta Espana, where he came within 13 seconds of the GC win. He was later awarded the overall title. Back at the Giro in 2018, Froome gave us one of the most extraordinary days in cycling history, obliterating his rivals with a solo 80km escape that put him in the Malia Rossa he would, of course, stay there to complete his Grand Slam of consecutive Grand Tour wins. It was a win that seemed so unlikely nine years previously, with Froome zigzagging behind Gerrans on the road to San Luca. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. This episode was produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter, at Saddleblaze, and you can hear more from me, at Graham Wilgos. Plus, you can follow Eurosport at Eurosport underscore UK, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Join us for our next episode when we'll go back to a legendary solo breakaway that gave Fausto Coppi his 1949 Giro crown. And if you've enjoyed this ride through cycling history, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts.